Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Mr. Beacon Podcast is sponsored by Williot, scaling IoT with battery-free Bluetooth. Welcome to another episode of the Mr. Beacon Podcast. We really appreciate you joining us on this journey where we discover all the things that uh, solutions architects need to know when they're building uh, the next generation of auto ID solutions, uh, beacons and uh, tags and uh, all of the technology and protocols are what we deal with. This week, I'm very excited um, to have uh, an important chapter in what we study. Uh, we're going to be talking about GS1, and I have Melanie News from uh, GS1. She's part of the senior leadership team there, and we're going to be talking about GS1. I think it's really key that people understand the organization, some of the standards, and then what's happening in this next generation of supply chain technology and, and systems that are rolling out. So, Melanie, thanks so much for joining us. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. And I think, um, you know, GS1 is one of these uh, terms that most people have heard about. A lot of people don't really understand super well. Um, it's, it's really a very significant organization. Can you introduce us to GS1 and uh, what should someone who's entering this industry and wanting to, uh, to build solutions, what should they know about the organization itself? Sure. GS1 is a global standards organization. We're most well known for our standards and supply chain identification starting with what we now refer to as the humble barcode, whether that's a UPC or an EAN, depending on what part of the world you're in, uh, which was first scanned in the 1970s, approaching 50 years um, of this very simple but powerful linear barcode technology. And that was how we became an organization, was a coalition of industry members in the consumer goods space that wanted to facilitate better checkout experience and more accuracy in, in price um, for consumers. And we started there in the 70s and now all over the world, GS1 barcodes are scanned 6 billion times a day. But to your point, Steve, around being sort of the, the littlest known and really the backbone essentially of retail commerce, right? This, this notion of the barcode that goes beep. Um, what, what we've done over the past four decades is expand the notion of standards, not only around core 
product identification, but all of the notions of that product within a supply chain, cases and pallets and assets, um, a data model that surrounds supply chain information and how partners can exchange meaningful data to drive business decisions. And of course, most recently, how do we take advantage of emerging technology and what role do we play while we continue to maintain that not-for-profit neutral reputation that we're most appreciated for in bringing industry collaborate collaborators together. Um, but I work at GS1 US. We are uh, one of 115 member organizations of GS1 all over the world. So it's a federation. The, the global standard is how we all feed into ensuring consistency. Uh, but we do local implementation, time zone, and language support in each of our different countries. And a, about 2 million businesses all over the world use GS1 standards. And so I've, I've had the great fortune in the past couple of years of self-checkout has become more prevalent when you sit on an airplane and somebody says, oh, what do you do? Um, which my husband used to say she works in accounting. And I, I don't know why that is, but <laughs> counting products, but not accounting. Um, so I, you know, you get the chance to say to someone, have you tried self-checkout? Oh, I've done that. And I said, well, the, you know, the little barcode that goes beep when you, when you pass that over the scanner, there's actually a standard for managing that those numbers are unique and that the bag of potato chips rings up at its correct price and, you know, the four pack of toilet paper rings up at its correct price. So uh, it's, it's very interesting when you get to talk about the foundation that GS1 standards provide, but the criticality of the technology that then enables those standards for all the members around the world. So how many people work at the organization? It's bigger than I think most people would have initially thought when they think about, you know, AIM or the, the, uh, the, the groups that uh, curate uh, RFID or Bluetooth is a big organization. But my sense is that you have a lot more people. How, how many? Well, in the U.S., we have 175 employees, and but I would say there are some GS1 member organizations that have two. Uh, I think oh. when one of the ones in Central America that I had looked up has seven. So we range from right. I'm and GS1 U.S. is the biggest. I think geogra geographically, right? We represent significant amount of commerce. And so uh, we're, we're probably the largest member organization, but others like Germany, Australia, United Kingdom, France, um, of course, in Asia and the work that they're doing around sensors and IoT between Hong Kong, Japan, China. And then we sort of augment how big we are with partnerships with other organizations like the Auto ID Labs. Um, there are seven of those all over the world. And in the US, my team manages the relationship with MIT. And so we kind of use them as an extension of staff um, to help us accelerate investigation into, into tech and standards. And how you're a nonprofit, but you get revenue somehow, what's, what's the mechanism? Our primary revenue model is licensing identifiers. So every part of a global trade item number or what most people understand as a UPC is a company prefix. And that company prefix system is managed by the member organization. So GS1 Global confers a, essentially a bank of numbers to each member organization, and then we license those out to our members in varying capacities, right? For a large company, may hold many, many prefixes. If you're manufacturing apparel, you're turning over a lot of products. Um, you probably have in the tens or maybe even the hundreds of different prefixes that you pull from. Um, and then again, you might be a really small business that, um, 
I know someone who happened to launch uh, custom coffee sleeves, the, the little, you know, warming sleeves in, in kind of an environmentally friendly way. And she had, I think, four or five designs. And so she has a very small allocation of GS1 identifiers. But our primary revenue comes from licensing those identifiers out to our members. So if I'm a, a brand, I might have a few hundred. So what what is it is is it a prefix for each category, or it's not a prefix for each product? No. So a prefix has varying capacity. If you in the U.S., the largest capacity we license is a hundred thousand. So when you license that number from us, you can create up to a hundred thousand unique trade items, and that would you know in apparel it would be sort of like this level style color size um, footwear one particular size of a shoe in a particular color is one g-tin so you can imagine in footwear you need lots of numbers um, but by the same token in beverages you would need a different one for each flavor and a different one for each size because again when you scan that barcode at the point of sale that drives the price lookup and so you have to have those different price points and different identifiers to support that but yeah so we go all the way down to the single actually in november of last year was the first time we released the ability for a business to just come and license one trade item number from us now the the flip side of that is that we're not only just about product identifiers the gs1 system supports location asset entity identifiers, um, documents, and service relationships. And so a GS1 prefix is actually the key that unlocks your ability to create a whole suite of unique identifiers for different supply chain contexts. And so a lot of what we do in the US is help educate our members about the power of that unlock. It's not just about being able to assign that to your, uh, you know, your box of rice, but also to every distribution center. And, and you can even put um, embedding in advanced data carriers, asset identifiers on trailers and, um, you know, tests for cold chain purposes or other things. So there are 12 different GS1 keys and are, we're the stewards over that numbering system and then helping members implement them in, in different ways to achieve business benefit. So what would an example of a GS1 key mean? That's a, a type of, uh, of code, is it? Yeah, so the global trade item number is one of the keys. That's the most common one that gets put into a UPC barcode. Uh, we have one called a global location number. That one, these all of course are acronym based and so that we call a, GLA, a GLN. Um, those identify either entities or locations most commonly used in, in supply chain transactions, right? So if you and I are going to exchange data electronically, we need to know who each other is. And so um, you have kind of that entity identifier that says I'm company A and you're company B, or you may have location identifiers that say this product came from this warehouse in Malaysia or this distribution center in New Jersey, uh, but also uh, at an asset level where we've seen a lot of interesting implementation is in things like rail and um, you know uh, this is in Europe primarily where they've used the global individual asset identifier to put sensors at different points along a railway uh, and right in order to track maintenance and performance and so uh, those those GS1 keys are essentially what in what ways can I use my GS1 prefix to construct unique identifiers that I can then apply in a supply chain context for different use cases, right? So tracking product, creating relationships, exchanging electronic information. Um, there's a whole variety of different ways you can bring them together. So wh why do I need to, as a, as a uh, maker of uh, railroad uh, infrastructure, 
uh, or a, a, a brand, why do I need to uh, get these numbers? I guess it's essentially what we're talking about from GS1. Why don't I just make it up myself? Make it and, up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, you know, it's interesting because if if the world was just about one company and you were only you were in charge of everything, you probably wouldn't need a GS1 identifier. But this was the real key, right? Even back in the 70s when they were first talking about putting a, a barcode on a package was to say, I have to know the difference between scanning a product from Coca-Cola and a product from Pepsi. And Coke and Pepsi were distributing their products into every grocery store, every mass merch, every convenience store. And you needed a common identifier in order to drive, first of all, um, global uniqueness so that you don't have a clash of numbers. Because if you and I both create proprietary numbers, there's a risk that we'll create the same number. Um, you had also, I think, that the notion of um, governance over those numbers to ensure that there wasn't going to be duplication at an issuance level. Every country has a responsibility, right, to make sure that we're following the principles of the system. Um, and I think then the other piece is because we are a complex ecosystem of companies, when we want to abstract data out of our four walls and pass it along to another trading partner, we call GS1 the global language of business, right? It's about making that common way to abstract data. It's uh, It's been really fascinating as you've seen technology like blockchain come onto the scene and everybody's like, blockchain's going to solve all the problems and it'll create these traceable supply chains. Well, sure, but you have to have data. A blockchain is just a mechanism to exchange and store data. But if you don't have a business agreement on what that payload looks like, and so those those unique identifiers sort of became the anchor for additional information, whether that be attributes or transaction data, that when you and I exchange that, we know that we're speaking in a common way. Um, so that was really where the genesis of standards came from. And certainly, I think, as we've moved from a purely physical world where going beep at the checkout makes so much sense that I need to have a unique identifier that's well understood by all the parties. As we move into a digital environment, I would say that the additional value of those global identifiers is all around analytics because now we're seeing just this proliferation of distributed data and I need to be able to get all that together assemble it and make some decisions about it. And the best way is right through linking that, uh, linking a common identifier to all of that data it makes me think about um, you know IP addresses on the internet. The internet wouldn't work unless everyone on it had a unique address. And it seems like GS1 serves a similar functions for identifying uh, products. You have this uniqueness, this ability to interact and uh, and exchange information. Um, how, how much does it cost? If I'm a, I go into business, I'm going to start making. Steve Statler perfume. I want a GS1 code. What am I paying for that? $30. If you just want to make one, one <laughs> bottle, one type, one size, one cent, $30. Um, actually, so it ranges in price, the GS1 US and each country, right? We're, we're independent. So I can't speak to what, what other countries may, uh, may offer in terms of pricing, but in the US, our pricing is public. It's available on our website. But it ranges from that, again, that lowest one of a single item. I'm just going to create one thing. I, I met a woman many years ago. It's the strangest thing that probably doesn't even, people don't use it anymore because we're all at home for one, so we don't wear earrings. But she made this tool that adjusted the, the tightness of your clip-on earring. And at the time when I was working with her, I was very young in my career, and I was like, 
people wear clip-on earrings. You know, my I guess my grandma did, but um, but as you get older, you understand like earrings are painful, and there's some value in that. But she she made a tool that was just this one thing she made. So it was just one G10. She didn't need a bunch. Um, and so today, um, you know, and these capabilities back then didn't exist. But today we have the ability to offer that single at $30. Um, our largest capacity, as I mentioned before, in the US that we license is 100,000. Um, those, I believe, go for 10,500. Um, and so when you start looking at your per item price, there's right, it scales down as you as you license more capacity, but $30 for a single. And, um, you know, and so if you're curious, you can always just go out to the website and, and acquire a single. G then you'll have a G10. Someone was telling me yesterday, uh, we were on a call with a customer and they said, don't underestimate the idea of, of, of a vanity claim by a small brand because a small brand would say, well, to your point, like, why do I need a unique identifier? I'm just a small brand. I'm selling out of my garage. I'm, I'm listed on one marketplace and, you know, I'm managing my own supply chain. Like I'm using local small parcel provider to send products to customers. I don't need this, but to be able to say, right, I'm affiliated with a global standards organization. I have a unique identifier. If I ever get that promising deal with Kroger or Sephora or PetSmart, you know, they're going to need, it's, it's going to need a barcode in physical retail, um, it was just interesting because I had never thought about, we always think of, you know, what is the value proposition around unique ID? It's our job to make sure people understand that for the value of supply chain efficiency. But when she said, don't underestimate that small brands might be interested in this vanity, uh, vanity ID, I'm like, all right, perfect. We'll add that to our list of, you know, reasons to license, but a lot of different reasons, I guess. Yeah, we, we just joined Williot, um, and, and so we got our, our first identifiers. And part of the reason we joined was we wanted to, because we have these battery-free Bluetooth tags uh, that are going to be used for conveying this sort of information. We felt like, well, we need to kind of eat our own dog food. We need to We need to use this these yeah. standards so that we can organize our own products. And that's actually it's been great. And and also, I have to say, we just feel a little bit more grown up. We've moved from that early stage of prototypes and that sort of thing. Oh, we're shipping in volume. We have our own GS1 codes, and uh, uh, so it's felt good for us. Um, I love it. So why have different GS1 organizations in different countries. It's kind of one standard, uh, presumably. So uh. the interesting thing is, business still happens very much locally, right? The the notion of walking into your your market in your village, um, your hometown, and and your local language being on the packaging and the people who produce that. Uh, you know, I think e-commerce is certainly driving more of an of the idea of a global marketplace, but satisfying the just the quantitative needs inventory wise of a global consumer community is probably daunting for anybody some years ago i can recall that when we're talking about uh, part of the gs1 standard is what we call the global data synchronization network and it's essentially a network of data pools that have information about items in trade and before we started this idea of data pools that would interoperate and i think there's probably 30 some odd that i might be wrong there might be 40 all over the world that said i know about these products and you know about these products and you know we'll create an orchestration to allow people to 
exchange information globally about them. Um, we had one really large retailer say, look, I just need to keep frozen peas on the shelf and I need to know where can I find frozen peas. So there are those players who need that sort of global view of where are peas available but producers tend to still be very local. When you think about coffee bean farmers in South America or people who grow strawberries or lettuce here in the United States or leafy greens, which have you know been very interesting in a supply chain context in the past decade, um, that's still happening very much at a local level. And so it would be probably very difficult as a single organization for us to service all of those language time zone and implementation needs and frankly priorities are a little bit different if you're in a very advanced country that's looking at things um you know uh, like iot based sensors whether they be bluetooth or nbiot or uhf or nfc uh, you know your smorgasbord of acronyms which we're all dealing with certainly um in lead in the leading company space in some other countries, it's really more of the question of, look, I, I grow strawberries and information about these strawberries is important as they move down the chain, but I don't have the margin or the technology to invest in making sure right, that all of that rich automated data is available. And very simply, um, right, someone can provide me a little bit of local support and likely um, a sensor that I can drop into the each tray of strawberries as it loads onto the truck and somebody else is actually going to then reap the benefit of that data. But even to get to that farmer and explain to them the value of that sensor uh, requires boots on the ground, right? Somebody who's got cultural knowledge, language knowledge, and the time uh, within their business day to support them. So uh, if you were to enumerate the um, handful of key functions that GS1 fulfills, what, what would those be? Part of it is obviously this um, uh, making sure that the codes that uh, people use are, are unique. Uh, there's some standards. Uh, there's a lot of standards that exist and presumably new ones that are being built out. You work in this innovation space. Uh, what are the other areas that uh, where you're helping the industry well i think the the coalition of the willing is a big part of what my team does in in innovation how do you get a retail retailer a manufacturer maybe a distributor uh, oftentimes transport providers especially now as we're looking at the criticality of some supply chains whether it's food or pharmaceuticals Cold chain is a very interesting space really now, right? And making sure that you maintain the integrity of that. And GS1 has always been known as a convener. So our core standards identify, capture, and share, right? Give something a unique identifier, capture information about it in a machine readable way, share that with trading partners in order to drive business decisions. That's the foundation of the standard. Well, then, of course, the practicality is in how do I implement that? And so those are a little bit of where we talk about, right, implementation services across the world, um, how we connect communities with an education about the standard, driving awareness, because to your point, GS1 may be some com a company you've heard of or it may not be. When you talk about a UPC barcode, for example, in the US, most people get that. Oh, it's that thing with the bar, bars and spaces, you know, on the back of a package, but they don't, most of them will say, oh, I didn't know there was someone 
overlooking that system. And so educating uh, people as they're entering the, the commerce landscape, new business owners, you know, the majority of our new members in the US are very tiny companies commensurate with what's happening in the e, in the e-marketplace space, right? As lots of, anybody can launch a business now. Uh, I think the pandemic also really highlighted the ability of anybody who has an idea, now's your time. You're all stuck at home. Some great ideas were coming out of that. And um, so helping people understand how to implement the standard, but I also think the one of the most important things that we are passionate about in the US is getting the technology community to embed standards in what they're taking to market. Because as I had said it before, standards are only as good as the technology that enables them. So if we aren't helping technology providers create that baseline, uh, then there isn't that scale. And so, uh, you know, I like to talk about the multiplier and how we're a small, even at 175 people, GS1 US is a small organization. But if I can get the partnership of, you know, Williot and other partners that you guys work with to be talking to all of your customers and prospects about how standards can enable what they're trying to do with their supply chain, um, that's just an incredible benefit of having that community. So we're very committed to that technology provider community in the US um, and how you guys are, are exponentiating what standards can do for for the end user cool that's a great explanation um i'd like people who listen to us to be able to go away and feel like they're a bit smarter than they were before and i think you've laid out a lot of new information at least from my perspective but help us really nail what is a upc and what is a gtin uh, i mean these are acronyms that are, are used extensively yeah Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. No, that's such a good point. Um, a barcode, a UPC is a type of barcode. So oftentimes it gets mis mistaken that a UPC is a number. A UPC is actually a symbology, and it's the symbology that appears on bags of lettuce and um jars of salad dressing, you know, as I mentioned before, bottles and cans of soda. Uh, that is that is a UPC. There are other types of barcodes. So you could just say, right, a UPC is a type of barcode and there are many different barcode technologies. And as you know, other sensor and advanced data cares, but, but a technology like a barcode or an RFID tag has to have something embedded in it, a unique identifier that says, when I read this, I know what you are, now I can actually start to tie data to you in a meaningful way. 
That global trade item number, what we call the GTIN, is the number that then gets translated into that barcode symbol. Um, or that's the number that gets embedded into a UHF RFID chip so that when a, a, a fixed infrastructure reader right, is reading a floor of inventory inside of a department store, it can actually tell the difference between all of the things that are sitting on the sales floor. So the numbering system is essentially part of when we talk about identification and GS1 keys, those are all numbering conventions. They, right, they follow specific size. They usually have a check digit so that you can confirm it's been calculated correctly, that it is a valid number. And then when we move into capture, we say, how do you take those numbers and embed them into something a machine can read? Because that's where the benefit of automation comes from. And those are barcodes. And what a lot of people don't realize um, is that not all barcodes are the same, right? There are very simple barcode like a UPC that's used to drive a checkout experience and very complex barcodes. Even in the linear barcode space, like we have a serialized identifier that you put in a barcode called a GS1128, which is all about moving cartons through distribution centers. And right, so I'm sure many of your listeners are, are too young to know this, but I know. Um, back in the day, all receiving that happened in a supply chain was manual. And right, you were opening boxes and looking or, or pulling packing slips off cartons. And when we went to barcode technology within distribution centers, they created this notion of um, cross-docking where I could read a carton. It had a barcode that tied to an electronic record that said, this has 15 t-shirts in it and they're destined for store 100, right? And you, you didn't even open that box. Your conveyor system sent it off to the truck that was waiting for store 100. It's as a regular consumer, you just don't real. I love how one of our board members, he always says, you know, this, the challenges we have around data and managing data and um, exchanging data within supply chains are, are quite um, cumbersome. <laughs> they're, they're definitely challenging for us, but the miracle of trade still happens. And the miracle of trade is because over time we've invested in these technologies that have allowed us to really um, accelerate how things move through a supply chain. And all of that is different types of, of barcode and RF technology where the unique numbers get embedded. So this may be confirmation bias, but where I see a significant change that's happening, it's been happening for a while, but it really seems to be accelerating, is this move from to, to serialization, to giving more and more things, not just a general description, a skew or whatever, but giving them um, each individual item this ID because that's enabling um, uh, authenticity, uh, traceability, uh, recall management, uh, better uh, linking of the owner with the product and uh, so many reasons why people are doing it. How, help us understand where this unique uh, serialized identifier fits with SKUs and, and GTINs. Can you map out their interrelationship? Yes, um, and I'll try to do, you know, I know you have an astute audience, so they'll, this will probably not be a big leap for them, but the, the GTIN, the global trade item number, what you see in a UPC barcode is just a class level identifier. So every bag of nine ounce regular flavored potato chips from brand X all have the same one, right? So to your point, if you want to get value from expiry management or recall support, um, inventory rotation, it has to be a little bit more robust. And our biggest frustration, like me as a, as a 
an innovator, maybe it's not even very innovative to be honest, is there are these little printed codes on every package that you see, right? If you pick up a, a beverage, you'll see there's this little printed code and it's the batch lot identifier, um, which gets added at the time the product goes into the package because the package has been manufactured somewhere else. It's brought to the plant and then the product goes inside of it. And this is really why we haven't gotten to a great level of serialization in sort of fast moving consumer goods. But it is 100% needed in order to automate some of these terribly manual processes that actually not only continue to perpetuate like labor inefficiency within, you know, a, a retail environment, but actually have major impact on the consumer. Uh, you know, the example of where you go in to buy a product and the product itself is not recalled, but there has been a recall on something, a different batch of that same product. The problem is because those codes aren't machine readable, that store is either making a decision to not sell you that product because some recall flag came up when you tried to scan it at the point of sale, but they, they don't have a way right through the barcode or the sensor to tell, um, or they're pulling wholesale product off shelves, uh, or in fact, they're selling you something they shouldn't sell because right nobody went and did the homework to pull the recalled batches off the shelf. So this move towards serialization is 100% required. And what we would even say is, if you just sort of skip batch lot, because that's a, a, a thing in, in low margin consumer goods, we all get batch lot, serialization seems so scary to us. But the truth is, if I just serialized every package when I printed it, then I could add the batch lot data as a cloud reference when I put the product inside the package, right? Serial number one got batch one, serial number two got batch two. Then this you're bringing now what's on the package with what's in the cloud together to drive that efficiency and experience. And so this is a, really a, the strongest message that my team is working on right now is how do you get from you know, a UPC, what we would call a class level identifier. Yes, I know this is a bag of nine ounce potato chips too. I know it's this nine ounce bag of potato chips that Maybe you know Melanie bought it, maybe you didn't know Melanie bought it, but certainly if you recalled it, you would be able to say, probably through my loyalty card, hey, customer X, we think you bought a recalled product, you should probably return it to the store. Um, those sort of experiences are right around the corner if we can move to serializing and then putting that serial number in a machine readable, likely a 2D barcode as one mechanism. I think sensors as a more advanced mechanism, um, but some combination of a human readable element and right then a, a very strong high-speed machine readable element. Uh, this is what we're, we're trying to push industry towards, but in all fairness, Steve, um, it took us a lot of years to get the UPC on product. <laughs> and so um, we've kind of set some target goals for industry uh, around 2027 to move from these 1D barcodes to a more advanced data carrier and start to take advantage of the use cases that are available that we're just not exploiting today because right, we, we've made a, a particular technology choice that now needs to be swapped out. Fascinating. I. Um, unfortunately, we've run out of time. I, I, we could go another hour. Uh, uh, as far as I'm concerned, there's a lot more I'd like to talk to you about. But Melanie, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been really uh, a great pleasure talking to you. Yes, thank you so much. It was great to meet you and do this. I, I really enjoyed it. And so I'm going to thank you, our, our viewers and listeners, for spending time. Uh, if you have been, thanks for listening. I'm uh, going to thank uh, Nelson Hernandez, who edits the show, Jesse Hazelrig, who is our uh, producer, 
uh, Don Rayner, who uh, created the uh, opening titles and does our voiceover introduction. Uh, and uh, uh, once again, um, thanks so much for listening. Melanie, uh, can you just tell us a bit about what your role is at GS1? Yes. I am the Senior Vice President of Corporate Development. It's our fancy term for innovation. I lead a team that looks at the intersection of emerging technology and standards to solve current and future business problems. You know, we're a member-driven organization. GS1 is not-for-profit neutral. We have always sat in that collaborative space of solving uh, industry problems that will allow scale, adoption at scale. And so a few years ago, the, the company decided that we needed to, to continue to focus on looking around the corner. And so my team was formed and we, we look at all kinds of interesting topics and I think some that we'll get to explore today. This sounds like a super interesting role. Uh, I can imagine you get to think about challenging problems and work with people that are on the cutting edge. How did, how did you get the job? I got lucky. Um, you know, it's funny you ask because at the time I was working on the industry side of the business. I, I was leading the apparel and general merchandise industry engagement community, which is working with all those members in that sector, uh, really around kind of um, just common supply chain challenges. But apparel was one of the first communities to go down the RFID path with item level RFID and really try to fulfill that omni-channel promise. So I think I had a little bit of the bug for sort of being on the, the edge of where we're going with standards. And when we, uh, several years ago, we got in a room, uh, we called this Project George, and it was to define an innovation process. I don't know why we picked the name George. We were trying to be very agnostic to the name, right? Just pick a name that means nothing. So we picked the I name George it. and we, we sat in a room for a couple of months and formulated what does innovation look like in the realm of standards, right? Because standards are kind of the opposite of innovation to most people. We're waiting for industry to reach these adoption plateaus where they hit a wall and say, hey, we need a standard to kind of level the playing field so we can move forward. And for the first time ever, we were saying, we're actually going to take a leading position. We're going to have a point of view on things and we're going to start researching emerging technology. So I helped with the team that formulated it at the time, still doing my day job. And a few months later, after our senior leadership team had gone to the board, they came and asked me to run the function. So I've been doing that now four and a half years. I, I love it so much. I never knew that I wanted to be an innovator. But I was just remarking to my boss the other day that I feel so fortunate that we, we invested in an innovation practice. Really, at the same time, a lot of our other corporate partners, right, in the consumer products and healthcare space, were doing the same thing. Um, and to that point of technology innovation, not just product R&D, but really how do technologies enable supply chain businesses to progress, um, in addition to putting good products in, on the shelf for consumers? We work in an industry which, in my opinion, has just got terrible, terrible problems with uh, diversity. Uh, I mean, I, uh, uh, I work in a company we're all super well-intentioned, um, and I, I'm really conscious that for women uh, in, um, in in this business, however you define this business, and our company's semiconductors and uh, um, cloud services and auto ID, 
Um, th there's not a lot of women uh, at senior positions like you are. Um, was it a, a, a battle for you because of that? Or did it, you know, did you have to be super conscious of your gender in getting to where you've got to? Um, what's it been like for you? It's actually, I, I adopted this philosophy early on in my career that merit wins. And if you do a good job and, and you show that you have an aptitude for learning, intellectual curiosity is the thing I tell my team. If you want to be in the GS1 US corporate development team, you better be curious because you're probably going to be lying on the floor with a cold washcloth pressed to your head many nights of the week, just absorbing all these concepts that we're learning. But actually, I, I have to say, when I joined and, and I started this role, I was not part of the senior leadership team. And then about a year into it, um, our CEO added me to the senior leadership team where he already had essentially a 50-50 split between men and women. And so I have been the uh, recipient of just a, some way that had been paved before me. And I actually kind of got accused of having the opposite problem. My team was all women until I got to, our team is now about almost 13 people, but we were, we were all the way up to uh, six before we added a, a man. And now we're, we run about, we're almost half and half uh, women and men. We did find that having, and also I have to tell you, Steve, the other important um, diverse element that we've added, because we have good cultural diversity among the team as well, but also it was generational diversity. When you're working in an innovation role, if you don't bring on some early career professionals, you inevitably will infuse so much confirmation bias into what you're doing. And you can tell yourself that you're willing to change, but it really comes down to having someone on the outside um, right, challenge you and say, no, this, this isn't the way the current consumer thinks, or this isn't how my generation views sustainability or circular economy. So it's been really great to have some of those younger voices. And we were all joking, a bunch of the, the you know more senior folks on our team were joking that this is who we were 20 years ago when people were shepherding us and, and really helping us formulate our career trajectory. This is who we are now and, and training up the next generation. So that's been another exciting angle uh, of diversity that we've employed in our team. Yeah, that's such a win when you get that. I think it just makes a much better environment. When uh, our company was formed, it was formed by a bunch of really experienced veterans. And I think we part of the capital raising was made easier by that. But there's a downside to that. And so we made a conscious effort to get younger people in the organization, speaking as someone who's not younger. Um, yeah, I feel, <laughs> I, you. I feel you. And it is just really, I think everyone wins. You, you, uh, the older people enjoy like passing on some of the experience they've had, but then they're like, you get, you feel younger when you're around younger people and uh, they kind of challenge you and uh, you're like, oh my God, I, I really need to work hard to keep up with these people that don't need to sleep and have all this energy. Oh, and, uh, no doubt. All <laughs> oh, the sleeping. <laughs> so um, I want to um, get in our standard uh, warm-up questions here and um, ask you a bit about music. So do you, uh, is music a big part of your life or is it just kind of uh, the, 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 the wallpaper in the background? I, I love music. I actually studied piano for many years and was able to employ that in the church context as a, an accompanist um, for quite some time. 
But also I have a boxer who, of course, I've had her since she was eight weeks old. She's now 11 and a half. And she used to love to dance with me. And so that was when she was young, she'd come up on the two back paws and we would just, you know, play some music with a great dance beat. And so I um, music has been very much I don't. I don't like silence. And so I do really enjoy to have something musical. Of course, now, you know, with the proliferation of podcasts in the world, sometimes you have to balance um, how much time you yeah. get to let yourself go with some music. But anytime I'm working out, anytime I'm doing household chores, there's definitely the uh, the shuffle in the background of a variety of, of genres. That is funny you mentioned that. I, I am feeling that conflict. There's just so many good podcasts, and like, but I like to listen to music, and so your your ear time is being stretched between these two two things. So when you do listen to music, and if you had to come up with the, this list of three songs on this trip to Mars, which as of this last week seems like it's more and more probable, and we just saw amazing high definition footage from uh, this uh, spacecraft landing, which is so inspiring. What, what would you be listening to? What would be the three songs you would take to Mars uh, if for some reason you could only have three songs? Sure. Well, and I, it would be hard to go without my, my dog, I suppose, because she was the genesis of sort of the passion for dance. But definitely there's a song called uh, When Love Takes Over. It's by David Guetta and Kelly Rowland does the singing on it. That was that's my dog. Her name is Pretzel. That's our jam. And so we always love to dance to that. We'd get her barking and everything. But I also love um, Can't Stop the Feeling by Justin Timberlake. Again, how can you not get excited and just start moving when you hear that? And I would say last but not least is uh, Levitate by Hadoken because my nephew is just an amazing aerialist, gymnast, uh, great break dancing skills. He's 14 now. But I, uh, I lived with my brother and sister-in-law for many years when he was little and just got to be there as he learned all these skills. And that was, that was our song. And he would go out in the green belt and do backflips and, and we would play that song. So that's what I'm taking to Mars. <laughs> I love it. What about, I, I mean, you seem to travel, maybe not to Mars, but it seems like you travel a lot around the world uh, in your uh, uh, time. You, you uh, go to other countries and uh, help out. Do you uh, do you hear different things when you go on those travels? Uh, is that part of the landscape that changes? Most definitely. Um, you know, people's traditional roots in music have been very interesting as someone who's had the benefit of going to places and hearing and, um, you know, Latin America. And I just love Latin American influences. There was a year where I actually had spent some time traveling to Spanish speaking countries. And so I put my radio on Spanish pop music, not so much kind of the traditional, um, you know, Latin music, but but top, their top 40 and so I have quite a few of those songs that, that are still part of my library. And, and the other one was I, I was in Germany some years ago and it, this song came on and it, it's some like it's called Help Me in English. The English translation is Help Me. And it's this man who's brokenhearted over the woman leaving him. And I wanted the song so badly. And the only place that you could buy it at the time was to get on Amazon's German music platform, this, you know, talk about interoperability. We should, we should probably chat about that today, but there was such a lack of it that I had to have a German colleague download the file, get me over the file so that I could have just had to have the song. But, um, 
you know, interestingly, I think the theme of music is very similar all over the world, but just the execution. And maybe that's why I like sort of the upbeat dance, because anywhere you go, you can always generate a spirit of happiness and, and joy with, with kind of a dance beat. And I mean, some of the, the situations that you deal with, uh, kids who are orphaned, that's pretty sad, but it, it sounds like music is kind of a balance uh, to, uh, to these uh, tragic situations. Most definitely. And I think where you have a language barrier, music can be just a great way to kind of alleviate the stress of not being able to exchange words. Uh, I'm very fortunate in that I know how to speak Spanish, but my husband was just commenting to me that our last trip to Mexico, we went down to build a house over Christmas. Um, he was struggling because people assume if one of you speaks Spanish, you both do. And so I'd have these great conversations with the kids um, that we were partnering with there and they would just be looking at both of us and he's kind of nodding his head like I have no idea what you're saying so um, <laughs> right but but always playing a good tune and and getting a lot of diversity in the music and a lot of other countries really enjoy what I think American music brings to the table as well yeah I mean I grew up in England and and so I kind of got to see America from afar even though I was born in America. I kind of appreciated it from the outside perspective. And uh, yeah, that our culture is probably one of our strongest diplomatic tools, the movies, the TV, the music, uh, the clothes. Um, so where in the world have you been on these, uh, on these philanthropic uh, journeys that you take? Um, primarily, well, Honduras, uh, Peru, Mexico. I have a real passion for Latin culture. It was something I was very latent inside of me even when I was about 11 years old when I started to study Spanish. Um, and so the, I, um, you know, I've traveled a lot for work to many places. I've, but also um, my husband and I did a trip to the Philippines in 2018. That was a phenomenal trip. Um, and when you talk about, you know, just the, uh, the economic challenges that you see in another country and Metro Manila being as large as it is, um, has just uh, real poverty, uh, just a, a community that's right, experiencing homelessness and poverty. And they kind of shipped all those people away from Manila about two and a half hours to these little, uh, I, for lack of a better word, you could call it a relocation camp. And I mean, it's a neighborhood, it's a community. Um, but the joy, people who don't have what we have in America still have this probably even more joy in some cases because they're not distracted by all the things that we are. Um, but just so much fun. And we had the chance while we were there too. Somebody had a basketball hoop and happened to have some angle iron and happened to have a welder. This the whole community comes together. And my husband was able to help put this basketball hoop at, at this little property where we were working and play basketball with the kids. And um, so Philippines is probably the furthest I've gone on a, on a mission trip, but, um, but South America and Central America is probably where my heart, my heart thinks stays there every time I come back home. Wonderful. Well, what an adventure. It's been great talking to you about it. Thanks so much. Yes, thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.